This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 5 But my first night in the hunter's steerage was also my last. Next day, Johansson, the new mate, was routed from the cabin by Wolf Larsen and sent into the steerage to sleep thereafter, while I took possession of the tiny cabin stateroom, which on the first day of the voyage had already had two occupants. The reason for this change was quickly learned by the hunters, and became the cause of a deal of grumbling on their part. It seemed that Johansson, in his sleep, lived over each night the events of the day, his incessant talking and shouting and bellowing of orders had been too much for Wolf Larsen, who had accordingly foisted the nuisance upon his hunters. After a sleepless night, I arose weak and in agony to hobble through my second day on the ghost. 
Thomas Mugridge routed me out at half past five, much in the fashion that Bill Sykes must have routed out his dog. But Mr. Mugridge's brutality to me was paid back in kind and with interest. The unnecessary noise he made, I had lain wide-eyed the whole night, must have awakened one of the hunters, for a heavy shoe whizzed through the semi-darkness, and Mr. Mugridge, with a sharp howl of pain, humbly begged everybody's pardon. Later on, in the galley, I noticed that his ear was bruised and swollen. It never went entirely back to its normal shape, and was called a cauliflower ear by the sailors. The day was filled with miserable variety. I had taken my dried clothes down from the galley the night before, and the first thing I did was to exchange the cook's garments for them. I looked for my purse, in addition to some small change, and I have a good memory for such things. It had contained $185 in gold and paper. The purse I found, but its contents, with the exception of the small silver, had been abstracted. I spoke to the cook about it when I went on deck to take up my duties in the galley, and though I had looked forward to a surly answer, I had not expected the belligerent harangue that I received. Look here, ump, he began, a malicious light in his eyes and a snarl in his throat. You want your nose punched? If you think I'm a thief, just keep it to yourself, or you'll find out bloody well mistaken you are. Strike me blind at this ain't gratitude for you. Here you come, a poor miserable specimen of human scum, and I takes you into my galley and treat you handsome, and this is what I get for it? Next time you can go to hell, say I, and I've a good mind to give you what for anyway. So saying, he put up his fists and started for me. To my shame be it, I cowered away from the blow and ran out the galley door. What else was I to do? Force, nothing but force, obtained on this brute ship. Moral suasion was a thing unknown. Picture it to yourself. A man of ordinary stature, slender of build, and with weak, undeveloped muscles, who has lived a peaceful, placid life and is unused to violence of any sort. What could such a man possibly do? There was no more reason that I should stand and face these human beasts than that I should stand and face an infuriated bull. So I thought it out at the time, feeling the need for vindication and desiring to be at peace with my conscience. But this vindication did not satisfy nor to this day can I permit my manhood to look back upon those events and feel entirely exonerated. The situation was something that really exceeded rational formulas for conduct and demanded more than the cold conclusions of reason. When viewed in the light of formal logic, there is not one thing of which to be ashamed. But nevertheless, a shame rises within me at the recollection and in the pride of my manhood, I feel that my manhood has, in unaccountable ways, been smirched and sullied. All of which is neither here nor there. 
the speed with which I ran from the galley caused excruciating pain in my knee, and I sank down helplessly at the break of the poop. But the cockney had not pursued me. Look at em run! Look at em run! I could hear him crying. And with a gime leg at that. Come on back, you poor little mama's darling. I won't hit you. No, I won't. I came back and went on with my work, and here the episode ended for the time, though further developments were yet to take place. I set the breakfast table in the cabin, and at seven o'clock waited on the hunters and officers. The storm had evidently broken during the night, though a huge sea was still running and a stiff wind blowing. Sail had been made in the early watches, so that the ghost was racing along under everything except the two top sails and the flying jib. These three sails, I gathered from the conversation, were to be set immediately after breakfast. I learned also that Wolf Larsen was anxious to make the most of the storm which was driving him to the southwest, into that portion of the sea where he expected to pick up the northeast trades. It was before this steady wind that he hoped to make the major portion of the run to Japan, curving south into the tropics and north again as he approached the coast of Asia. After breakfast, I had another unenviable experience. When I had finished washing the dishes, I cleaned the cabin stove and carried the ashes up on deck to empty them. Wolf Larsen and Henderson were standing near the wheel, deep in conversation. The sailor, Johnson, was steering. As I started toward the weather side, I saw him make a sudden motion with his head, which I mistook for a token of recognition and good morning. In reality, he was attempting to warn me to throw my ashes over the lee side. Unconscious of my blunder, I passed by Wolf Larsen and the hunter and flung the ashes over the side to windward. The wind drove them back, and not only over me, but over Henderson and Wolf Larsen. The next instant, the latter kicked me violently as a curse kicked. I had not realized there could be so much pain in a kick. I reeled away from him and leaned against the cabin in a half-fainting condition. Everything was swimming before my eyes, and I turned sick. The nausea overpowered me, and I managed to crawl to the side of the vessel. But Wolf Larsen did not follow me up. Brushing the ashes from his clothes, he had resumed his conversation with Henderson. Johansson, who had seen the affair from the break of the poop, sent a couple of sailors aft to clean up the mess. Later in the morning, I received a surprise of a totally different sort. Following the cook's instructions, I had gone into Wolf Larsen's stateroom to put it to rights and make the bed. Against the wall near the head of the bunk was a rack filled with books. I glanced over them, noting with astonishment such names as Shakespeare, Tennyson, Poe, and De Quincey. There were scientific works, too, among which were represented men such as Tyndall, Proctor, and Darwin. Astronomy and physics were represented, and I remarked Bullfinch's Age of Fable, Shaw's History of English and American Literature, and Johnson's Natural History in two large volumes. 
Then there were a number of grammars, such as Metcalfs and Reed and Kellogg's, and I smiled as I saw a copy of the Dean's English. I could not reconcile these books with the man, from what I had seen of him, and I wondered if he could possibly read them. But when I came to make the bed, I found between the blankets, dropped apparently as he had sunk off to sleep, a complete browning, the Cambridge edition. It was open it in a balcony, and I noticed here and there passages underlined in pencil. Further letting drop the volume during a lurch of the ship, a sheet of paper fell out. It was scrawled over with geometrical diagrams and calculations of some sort. It was patent that this terrible man was no ignorant clod, such as one would inevitably suppose him to be from his exhibitions of brutality. At once he became an enigma. One side or the other of his nature was perfectly comprehensible, but both sides together were bewildering. I had already remarked that his language was excellent, marred with an occasional slight inaccuracy. Of course, in common speech with the sailors and hunters, it sometimes fairly bristled with errors, which was due to the vernacular itself. But in the few words he had held with me, it had been clear and correct. This glimpse I had caught of his other side must have emboldened me, for I resolved to speak to him about the money I had lost. I have been robbed, I said to him a little later, when I found him pacing up and down the poop alone. Sir, he corrected, not harshly, but sternly, I have been robbed, sir, I amended. How did it happen? He asked. Then I told him the whole circumstance, how my clothes had been left to dry in the galley, and how later I was nearly beaten by the cook when I mentioned the matter. He smiled at my recital. Pickings, he concluded. Cookies pickings. And don't you think your miserable life is worth the price? Besides, consider it a lesson. You'll learn in time how to take care of your money for yourself. I suppose up to now your lawyer has done it for you, or your business agent. I could feel the quiet sneer through his words, but demanded, How can I get it back again? That's your lookout. You haven't any lawyer or business agent now, so you'll have to depend on yourself. When you get a dollar, hang on to it. A man who leaves his money lying around the way you did deserves to lose it. Besides, you have sinned. You have no right to put temptation in the way of your fellow creatures. You tempted Cookie, and he fell. You have placed his immortal soul in jeopardy. By the way, do you believe in the immortal soul? His lids lifted lazily as he asked the question, and it seemed that the deeps were opening to me and that I was gazing into his soul. But it was an illusion. Far as it might have seemed, no man has ever seen very far into Wolf Larsen's soul. Or seen it at all. Of this I am convinced. It was a very lonely soul, I was to learn, that never unmasked, though at rare moments it played at doing so. I read immortality in your eyes, I answered, dropping the sir. An experiment, for I thought the intimacy of the conversation warranted it. He took no notice. By that I take it you see something that is alive, but that necessarily does not have to live forever. I read more than that, I continued boldly. Then you read consciousness. 
You read the consciousness of life that is alive, but still no further away, no endlessness of life. How clearly he thought, and how well he expressed what he thought. From regarding me curiously, he turned his head and glanced over the leaden sea to windward. A bleakness came into his eyes, and the lines of his mouth grew severe and harsh. He was evidently in a pessimistic mood. Then, to what end? he demanded abruptly, turning back to me. If I am immortal, why? I halted. How could I explain my idealism to this man? How could I put into speech a something felt, a something like the strains of music heard in sleep, a something that convinced yet transcended utterance? What do you believe then? I countered. I believe that life is a mess, he answered promptly. It is like yeast, a ferment, a thing that moves and may move for a minute, an hour, a year, or a hundred years, but that in the end will cease to move. The big eat the little that they may continue to move, the strong eat the weak that they may retain their strength. The lucky eat the most and move the longest, that is all. What do you make of those things? He swept his arm in an impatient gesture toward a number of the sailors who were working on some kind of rope stuff amidships. They move, so does the jellyfish move. They move in order to eat, in order that they may keep moving. There you have it. They live for their belly's sake, and the belly is for their sake. It's a circle. You get nowhere. Neither do they. In the end, they come to a standstill. They move no more. They are dead. They have dreams, I interrupted. Radiant, flashing dreams. Of grub, he concluded sententiously. And of more. Grub. Of a larger appetite and more luck in satisfying it. His voice sounded harsh. There was no levity in it. For look you, they dream of making lucky voyages which will bring them more money. Of becoming the mates of ships of finding fortunes, in short, of being in a better position for preying on their fellows, of having all night in, good grub, and somebody else to do the dirty work. You and I are just like them. There's no difference except that we have eaten more and better. I am eating them now, and you too. But in the past, you have eaten more than I have. You have slept in soft beds and worn fine clothes and eaten good meals. Who made those beds and those clothes and those meals? Not you. You never made anything in your own sweat. You live on an income which your father earned. You are like a frigate bird swooping down upon the boobies and robbing them of the fish they have caught. You are one with a crowd of men who have made what they call a government, who are masters of all other men, and who eat the food the other men get and would like to eat themselves. You wear the warm clothes. They made the clothes, but they shiver in rags and ask you, the lawyer or business agent who handles your money, for a job. But that is beside the matter, I cried. Not at all. He was speaking rapidly now and his eyes were flashing. It is piggishness, and it is life. Of what use or sense is an immortality of piggishness? What is the end? What is it all about? 
You have made no food, yet the food you have eaten or wasted might have saved the lives of a score of wretches who made the food but did not eat it. What immortal end did you serve, or did they? Consider yourself and me. What does your boasted immortality amount to when your life runs foul of mine? You would like to go back to the land, which is a favorable place for your kind of piggishness. It is a whim of mine to keep you aboard this ship where my piggishness flourishes. And keep you eye well. I may make or break you. You may die today, this week, or next month. I could kill you now with a blow of my fist, for you are a miserable weakling. But if we are immortal, what is the reason for this? To be piggish as you and I have been all our lives does not seem to be just the thing for immortals to be doing. Again, what's it all about? Why have I kept you here? Because you are stronger, I managed to blurt out. But why stronger? He went on at once with his perpetual queries. Because I am a bigger bit of the ferment than you. Don't you see? Don't you see? But the hopelessness of it. I protested. I agree with you, he answered. Then why move at all, since moving is living? Without moving and being part of the yeast, there would be no hopelessness. But, and there it is, we want to live and move, though we have no reason to, because it happens that it is the nature of life to live and move, to want to live and move. If it were not for this, life would be dead. It is because of this life that is in you that you dream of your immortality. The life that is in you is alive and wants to go on being alive forever. Bah! An eternity of piggishness. He abruptly turned on his heel and started forward. He stopped at the break of the poop and called me to him. By the way, how much was it that Cookie got away with? He asked. One hundred and eighty-five dollars, sir. I answered. He nodded his head. A moment later, as I started down the companion stairs to lay the table for dinner, I heard him loudly cursing some men amidships. End of chapter 5 Seawolf by Jack London Chapter 6 By the following morning, the storm had blown itself quite out and the ghost was rolling slightly on a calm sea without a breath of wind. Occasional light airs were felt, however, and Wolf Larsen patrolled the poop constantly, his eyes ever searching the sea to the northeastward, from which direction the great trade wind must blow. The men were all on deck and busy preparing their various boats for the season's hunting. There are seven boats aboard the captain's dinghy, and the six which the hunters will use. Three, a hunter, a boat puller, and a boat steerer, compose a boat's crew. On board the schooner, the boat pullers and steerers are the crew. The hunters, too, are supposed to be in command of the watches, subject always to the orders of Wolf Larsen. All this and more I have learned. The ghost is considered the fastest schooner in both the San Francisco and Victoria fleets. In fact, she was once a private yacht and was built for speed. 
her lines and fittings, though I know nothing about such things, speak for themselves. Johnson was telling me about her in a short chat I had with him during yesterday's second dog watch. He spoke enthusiastically, with the love for a fine craft such as some men feel for horses. He is greatly disgusted with the outlook, and I am given to understand that Wolf Larsen bears a very unsavory reputation among the sealing captains. It was the ghost herself that lured Johnson into signing for the voyage, but he is already beginning to repent. As he told me, the ghost is an 80-ton schooner of a remarkably fine model. Her beam, or width, is 23 feet, and her length a little over 90 feet. A lead keel of fabulous but unknown weight makes her very stable, while she carries an immense spread of canvas. From the deck to the truck of the main topmast is something over a hundred feet, while the foremast with its topmast is eight or ten feet shorter. I am giving these details so that the size of this little floating world which holds twenty-two men may be appreciated. It is a very little world, a moat, a speck and I marvel that men should dare to venture the sea on a contrivance so small and fragile. Wolf Larsen has also a reputation for reckless carrying on of sail. I overheard Henderson and another of the hunters, Standish, a Californian, talking about it. Two years ago, he dismasted the ghost in a gale on Bering Sea, whereupon the present masts were put in, which are stronger and heavier in every way. He is said to have remarked when he put them in that he preferred turning her over to losing the sticks. Every man aboard, with the exception of Johansson, who is rather overcome by his promotion, seems to have an excuse for having sailed on the ghost. Half the men forward are deep water sailors, and their excuse is that they did not know anything about her or her captain. And those who do know whisper that the hunters, while excellent shots, were so notorious for their quarrelsome and rascally proclivities that they could not sign on any decent schooner. I have made the acquaintance of another one of the crew. Lewis, he is called, a rotund and jovial-faced Nova Scotia Irishman, and a very sociable fellow, prone to talk as long as he can find a listener. In the afternoon, while the cook was below asleep and I was peeling the everlasting potatoes, Lewis dropped into the galley for a yarn. His excuse for being aboard was that he was drunk when he signed. He assured me again and again that it was the last thing in the world he would dream of doing in a sober moment. It seems that he has been seal hunting regularly each season for a dozen years and is accounted one of the two or three very best boat steerers in both fleets. Ah, my boy, he shook his head ominously at me. Tis the worst schooner you could have selected. Nor were you drunk at the time, as was I. Tis sealing is the sailor's paradise, on other ships than this. The mate was the first, but mark me words, There'll be more dead before the trip is done with. Hist, now between you and myself and the stanchion there, 
This Wolf Larsen is a regular devil. And the ghost'll be a hellship like she's always been since he had hold of her. Don't I know? Don't I know? Don't I remember him in Akodate two years gone, when he had a row and shot four of his men? Wasn't I laying on the M.L. not three hundred yards away? And there was a man the same year he killed with a blow of his fist. Yes, sir, killed him dead all. His head must have smashed like an eggshell. And wasn't they at the governor of Kura Island? And the chief of police, Japanese gentlemen, sir. And didn't they come aboard the ghost as his guests, or bringing their wives around? We and pretty little bits of things like you see him painted on fans. And as he was getting on the way, didn't the fond husbands get left astern like in their sampan, as it might be by accident? And wasn't it a week later that the poor little ladies was put ashore on the other side of the island, with nothing before them but to walk home across the mountains on their teeny-weeny little straw sandals, which wouldn't hang together a mile? Don't I know? Tis the beast he is, this wolf Larsen. The great big beast mentioned of in Revelation, and no good end will he ever come to. But I've said nothing to you, mind you. I've whispered never a word. For old fat Lewis to live the voyage out if the last mother's son of his go to the fishes. Awful arson, he snorted a moment later. Listen to the word, will you? Wolf. Tis what he is. He's not black-hearted like some men. Tis no heart he has at all. Wolf, just wolf, just what he is. Do you wonder he's well named? But if he is so well known for what he is, I queried, how is it that he can get men to ship with him? And how is it you can get men to do anything on God's earth and sea? Lewis demanded with Celtic fire. How do you find me warned, if twasn't that I was drunk as a pig when I put me name down? There's them that can't sail with better men, like the hunters, and them that don't know, like the poor devils of windjammers forward there. But they'll come to it, they'll come to it, and be sorry the day they was born. I could weep for the poor creatures, did I but forget poor old fat Lewis and the troubles before him. But tis not a whisper I've dropped, mind you, not a whisper. Them hunters is the wicked boys, he broke forth again for he suffered from a constitutional plethora of speech. But wait till they get to cutting up of jinx and rolling round. He's the boy to fix em. Tis him that'll put the fear of God in their rotten black hearts. Look at that hunter of mine, Horner. Jock Horner, they call him. So quiet-like and easy-going, soft-spoken as a girl, till you think but you wouldn't melt in the mouth of him. Didn't he kill his boat-steerer last year? "'Twas called a sad accident, but I met the boat-puller in Yokohama, and a straight fit was given me. And there's Smoke, the black little devil. Didn't the Russians have him for three years in the salt mines of Siberia, for Portion and Copper Island, which is a Russian preserve? Shackled he was, hand and foot, with his mate, and didn't they have words or a ruction of some kind?' But was the other fellow smoke sent up in the buckets to the top of the mine, and a piece at a time he went up, a leg today, and tomorrow an arm, and next day the head, and so on. 
but you can't mean it, I cried out, overcome with the horror of it. Mean what? he demanded, quick as a flash. Tis nothing I've said. Deef I am and dumb, as you should be for the sake of your mother. I never once have I opened me lips but to say fine things of them and him. God curse his soul, and may he rot in purgatory ten thousand years, and then go down to the last and deepest hell of all. Johnson, the man who had chafed me raw when I first came aboard, seemed the least equivocal of the men forward or aft. In fact, there was nothing equivocal about him. One was struck at once by his straightforwardness and manliness, which in turn were tempered by a modesty which might be mistaken for timidity. But timid he was not. He seemed rather to have the courage of his convictions, the certainty of his manhood. It was this that made him protest, at the commencement of our acquaintance, against being called Janssen. And upon this, and him, Lewis passed judgment and prophecy. "'Tis a fine chap, that squarehead Johnson we've got forward with us," he said. "The best sailorman in a fox, sir. He's my boat puller. But it's the trouble he'll come with full flarsen as the sparks fly upward. It's meself that knows. I can see it brewing and coming up like a storm in the sky. I've talked to him like a brother, but it's little he sees in taking in his lights or flying false signals. He grumbles out when things don't go to suit him and there'll be always some tell-tale carrying word of it to the wolf. The wolf is strong, and it's the way of a wolf to hate strength, and strength it is he'll see in Johnson. No knuckling under, and a yes, sir, thank you kindly, sir, for a curse or a blow. Oh, she's a-coming, she's a-coming, and God knows where I'll get another boat for her. What does the fool up and say when the old man calls him Janssen? But me name is Johnson, sir, and then spells it out letter for letter. You should have seen the old man's face. I thought he'd let drive at him on the spot. He didn't, but he will, and he'll break that squarehead's heart. Oh, it's little I know of the ways of men on the ships of the sea. Thomas Mugridge is becoming unendurable. I am compelled to mister him and to sir him with every speech. One reason for this is that Wolf Larsen seems to have taken a fancy to him. It is an unprecedented thing, I take it, for a captain to be chummy with the cook. But this is certainly what Wolf Larsen is doing. Two or three times he put his head into the galley and chaffed Mugridge good-naturedly. And once this afternoon he stood by the break of the poop and chatted with him for fully fifteen minutes. When it was over, and Mugridge was back in the galley, he became greasily radiant, and went about his work humming coster songs in a nerve-wracking and discordant falsetto. I always get along with the officers, he remarked to me in a confidential tone. I know the why. I do to make myself appreciate it. There was my last skipper, why, I thought nothing of stopping down in the cabin for a little chat and a friendly glass. Mugridge, says he to me. Mugridge, says he, you have missed your vocation. And how's that, says I. You should have been born a gentleman and never had to work for your living. 
God strike me dead, um, if that ain't what he says. And me sitting there in his own cabin, jolly-like and comfortable, smoking his cigars and drinking his rum. This jitter-chatter drove me to distraction. I never heard a voice I hated so. His oily, insinuating tones, his greasy smile, and his monstrous self-conceit grated on my nerves till sometimes I was all in a tremble. Positively, he was the most disgusting and loathsome person I have ever met. The filth of his cooking was indescribable, and as he cooked everything that was eaten aboard, I was compelled to select what I ate with great circumspection, choosing from the least dirty of his concoctions. My hands bothered me a great deal, unused as they were to work. The nails were discolored and black, while the skin was already grained with dirt, which even a scrubbing brush could not remove. Then blisters came, in a painful and never-ending procession, and I had a great burn on my forearm acquired by losing my balance in a roll of the ship and pitching against the galley stove. Nor was my knee any better. The swelling had not gone down, and the cap was still up on edge. Hobbling about on it from morning till night was not helping it any. What I needed was rest, if it were ever to get well. Rest? I never before knew the meaning of the word. I had been resting all my life and did not know it. But now, could I sit still for one half hour and do nothing, not even think, it would be the most pleasurable thing in the world. But it is a revelation, on the other hand. I shall be able to appreciate the lives of the working people hereafter. I did not dream that work was so terrible a thing. From half past five in the morning till ten at night, I am everybody's slave, with not one moment to myself except such as I can steal near the end of the second dog watch. Let me pause for a minute to look out over the sea sparkling in the sun or to gaze at a sailor going aloft to the calf's topsails, or running out to the bowsprit, and I am sure to hear the hated voice, Here, you won't. No soldiering. I got me peepers on you. There are signs of rampant bad temper in the steerage, and the gossip is going around that Smoke and Henderson have had a fight. Henderson seems the best of the hunters, a slow-going fellow, and hard to rouse. But roused he must have been, for Smoke had a bruised and discolored eye and looked particularly vicious when he came into the cabin for supper. A cruel thing happened just before supper, indicative of the callousness and brutishness of these men. There is one green hand in the crew, Harrison by name, a clumsy-looking country boy, mastered, I imagine, by the spirit of adventure, and making his first voyage. In the light, baffling airs, the schooner had been tacking about a great deal, at which times the sails pass from one side to the other, and a man is sent aloft to shift over the foregaff topsail. In some way, when Harrison was aloft, the sheet jammed in the block through which it runs at the end of the gaff. As I understood it, there were two ways of getting it cleared. First, by lowering the foresail, which was comparatively easy and without danger 
and second by climbing out the peak halyards to the end of the gaff itself, an exceedingly hazardous performance. Johansson called out to Harrison to go out the halyards. It was patent to everybody that the boy was afraid. And well, he might be, eighty feet above the deck, to trust himself on those thin and jerking ropes. Had there been a steady breeze, it would not have been so bad, but the ghost was rolling emptily in a long sea, and with each roll the canvas flapped and boomed and the halyards slacked and jerked taut. They were capable of snapping a man off like a fly from a whiplash. Harrison heard the order and understood what was demanded of him, but hesitated. It was probably the first time he had been aloft in his life. Johansson, who had caught the contagion of Wolf Larsen's masterfulness, burst out with a volley of abuse and curses. "'That'll do, Johansson,' Wolf Larsen said brusquely. "'I'll have you know that I do the swearing on this ship. If I need your assistance, I'll call you in.' "'Yes, sir,' the mate acknowledged submissively. In the meantime, Harrison had started out on the halyards. I was looking up from the galley door, and I could see him trembling as if with ague in every limb. He proceeded very slowly and cautiously, an inch at a time. Outlined against the clear blue of the sky, he had the appearance of an enormous spider crawling along the tracery of its web. It was a slight uphill climb, for the foresail peaked high and the halyards, running through various blocks on the gaff and mast, gave him separate holds for hands and feet. But the trouble lay in that the wind was not strong enough nor steady enough to keep the sail full. When he was halfway out, the ghost took a long roll to windward and back again into the hollow between two seas. Harrison ceased his progress and held on tightly. Eighty feet beneath, I could see the agonized strain of his muscles as he gripped for very life. The sail emptied and the gaff swung amidships. The halyards slackened, and though it all happened very quickly, I could see them sag beneath the weight of his body. Then the gag swung to the side with an abrupt swiftness, the great sail boomed like a cannon, and the three rows of reef points slatted against the canvas like a volley of rifles. Harrison, clinging on, made the giddy rush through the air. This rush ceased abruptly. The halyards became instantly taut. It was the snap of the whip. His clutch was broken. One hand was torn loose from its hold. The other lingered desperately for a moment and followed. His body pitched out and down, but in some way he managed to save himself with his legs. He was hanging by them, head downward. A quick effort brought his hands up to the halyards again, but he was a long time regaining his former position, where he hung a pitiable object. I'll bet he has no appetite for supper. I heard Wolf Larsen's voice, which came to me from around the corner of the galley. Stand from under! You, Johansson, watch out! Here she comes! In truth, Harrison was very sick, as a person is seasick and for a long time he clung to his precarious perch without attempting to move. Johansson, however, continued violently to urge him on to the completion of his task. It is a shame, 
I heard Johnson growling in painfully slow and correct English. He was standing by the main rigging, a few feet away from me. The boy is willing enough. He will learn if he has a chance. But this is... He paused a while, for the word murder was his final judgment. Hist, will you? Lewis whispered to him. For the love of your mother, hold your mouth. But Johnson, looking on, still continued his grumbling. Look here. The hunter Standish spoke to Wolf Larsen. That's my boat puller, and I don't want to lose him. That's all right, Standish, was the reply. He's your boat puller when you've got him in the boat, but he's my sailor when I have him aboard, and I'll do what I damn well please with him. But that's no reason... Standish began in a torrent of speech. That'll do. Easy as she goes, Wolf Larsen counseled back. I've told you what's what, and let it stop at that. The man's mine, and I'll make soup of him and eat it if I want to. There was an angry gleam in the hunter's eye, but he turned on his heel and entered the steerage companionway, where he remained looking upward. All hands were on deck now, and all eyes were aloft where a human life was at grapples with death. The callousness of these men, to whom industrial organization gave control of the lives of other men, was appalling. I, who had lived out the whirl of the world, had never dreamed that its work was carried on in such fashion. Life had always seemed a peculiarly sacred thing, but here it counted for nothing. It was a cipher in the arithmetic of commerce. I must say, however, that the sailors themselves were sympathetic, as instanced the case of Johnson. But the masters, the hunters and the captain, were heartlessly indifferent. Even the protest of Standish arose out of the fact that he did not wish to lose his boat-puller. Had it been some other hunter's boat-puller, he, like them, would have been no more than amused. But to return to Harrison. It took Joe Hansen, insulting and reviling the poor wretch, fully ten minutes to get him started again. A little later he made the end of the gaff, where, astride the spar itself, he had a better chance of holding on. He cleared the sheet and was free to return, slightly downhill now, along the halyards to the mast. But he had lost his nerve. Unsafe as was his present position, he was loath to forsake it for the more unsafe position on the halyards. He looked along the airy path he must traverse and then down to the deck. His eyes were wide and staring and he was trembling violently. I had never seen fear so strongly stamped upon a human face. Johansson called vainly for him to come down. At any moment he was liable to be snapped off the gaff, but he was helpless with fright. Wolf Larsen, walking up and down with smoke and in conversation, took no more notice of him, though he cried sharply once to the man at the wheel, You're off course, my man. Be careful, unless you're looking for trouble. Aye, aye, sir. The helmsman responded, putting a couple of spokes down. He had been guilty of running the ghost several points off her course in order that what little wind there was should fill the foresail and hold it steady. He had striven to help the unfortunate Harrison at the risk of incurring Wolf Larsen's anger. The time went by, 
and the suspense to me was terrible. Thomas Mugridge, on the other hand, considered it a laughable affair, and was continually bobbing his head out the galley door to make jocose remarks. How I hated him, and how my hatred for him grew and grew during that fearful time to cyclopean dimensions. For the first time in my life, I experienced the desire to murder. Saw red, as some of our picturesque writers phrase it. Life in general might still be sacred, but life in the particular case of Thomas Mugridge had become very profane indeed. I was frightened when I became conscious that I was seeing red, and the thought flashed through my mind, was I too becoming tainted by the brutality of my environment? I, who even in the most flagrant crimes had denied the justice and righteousness of capital punishment? Fully half an hour went by, and then I saw Johnson and Lewis in some sort of altercation. It ended with Johnson flinging off Lewis's detaining arm and starting forward. He crossed the deck, sprang into the fore-rigging, and began to climb. But the quick eye of Wolf Larsen caught him. Here, what are you up to? he cried. Johnson's ascent was arrested. He looked his captain in the eyes and replied slowly. I am going to get that boy down. You'll get down out of that rigging and damn lively about it. Do you hear? Get down. Johnson hesitated, but the long years of obedience to the masters of ships overpowered him, and he dropped sullenly to the deck and went on forward. At half after five, I went below to set the cabin table. But I hardly knew what I did, for my eyes and my brain were filled with the vision of a man, white-faced and trembling, comically, like a bug, clinging to the thrashing gaff. At six o'clock, when I served supper, going on deck to get the food from the galley, I saw Harrison still in the same position. The conversation at the table was of other things. Nobody seemed interested in a wantonly imperiled life. But, making an extra trip to the galley a little later, I was gladdened by the sight of Harrison staggering weakly from the rigging to the forecastle scuttle. He had finally summoned the courage to descend. Before closing this incident, I must give a scrap of conversation I had with Wolf Larsen in the cabin while I was washing the dishes. You were looking squeamish this afternoon, he began. What was the matter? I could see that he knew what had made me possibly as sick as Harrison, that he was trying to draw me, and I answered, it was because of the brutal treatment of that boy. He gave a short laugh. <laughs> like seasickness, I suppose. Some men are subject to it, and others are not. Not so, I objected. Just so, he went on. The earth is as full of brutality as the sea is full of emotion. And some men are made sick by the one, and some by the other. That's the only reason. But you, who make a mock of human life, don't you place any value upon it whatever? I demanded. Value? What value? He looked at me, and though his eyes were steady and motionless, there seemed a cynical smile in them. What kind of value? How do you measure it? Who values it? I do, I made answer. Then, what is it worth to you? Another man's life, I mean. Come now, what is it worth? The value of life? 
How could I put a tangible value upon it? Somehow, I, who have always had expression, lacked expression when with Wolf Larsen. I have since determined that a part of it was due to the man's personality, but that the greater part was due to his totally different outlook. Unlike other materialists I had met, and with whom I had something in common to start on, I had nothing in common with him. Perhaps also it was the elemental simplicity of his mind that baffled me. He drove so directly to the core of the matter, divesting a question always of all superfluous details, and with such an air of finality that I seemed to find myself struggling in deep water with no footing under me. Value of life? How could I answer the question on the spur of the moment? The sacredness of life I had accepted as axiomatic. That it was intrinsically valuable was a truism I had never questioned. But when he challenged the truism, I was speechless. We were talking about this yesterday, he said. I held that life was a ferment, a yeasty something which devoured life that it might live, and that living was merely successful piggishness. Why, if there is anything in supply and demand, life is the cheapest thing in the world. There is only so much water, so much earth, so much air. But the life that is demanding to be born is limitless. Nature is a spendthrift. Look at the fish and their millions of eggs. For that matter, look at you and me. In our loins are the possibilities of millions of lives. Could we but find time and opportunity and utilize the last bit of every bit of the unborn life that is in us, we could become the fathers of nations and populate continents. Life, bad. it has no value. Of cheap things, it is the cheapest. Everywhere it goes begging. Nature spills it out with a lavish hand. Where there is room for one life, she sows a thousand lives. And its life eats life till the strongest and most piggish life is left. You have read Darwin, I said. But you read him misunderstandingly when you conclude that the struggle for existence sanctions your wanton destruction of life. He shrugged his shoulders. You know you only mean that in relation to human life. For of the flesh and the fowl and the fish, you destroy as much as I or any other man. And human life is in no wise different, though you feel it is and think that you reason why it is. Why should I be parsimonious with this life which is so cheap and without value? There are more sailors than there are ships on the sea for them. More workers than there are factories or machines for them. Why, you who live on the land know that you house your poor people in the slums of cities and loose famine and pestilence upon them. And that there still remain more poor people, dying for want of a crust of bread and a bit of meat, which is life destroyed, than you know what to do with. Have you ever seen the London dockers fighting like wild beasts for a chance to work? He started for the companion stairs, but turned his head for a final word. Do you know the only value life has is what life puts upon itself? And it is, of course, overestimated since it is of necessity prejudiced in its own favor. Take that man I had aloft. He held on as if he were a precious thing, a treasure beyond diamonds or rubies. To you? No. To me? Not at all. To himself? Yes. 
but I do not accept his estimate. He sadly overrates himself. There is plenty more life demanding to be born. Had he fallen and dripped his brains upon the deck like honey from the comb, there would have been no loss to the world. He was worth nothing to the world. The supply is too large. To himself only was he of value. And to show how fictitious even this value was, being dead, he is unconscious that he has lost himself. He alone rated himself beyond diamonds and rubies. Diamonds and rubies are gone, spread out on the deck to be washed away by a bucket of seawater, and he does not even know that the diamonds and rubies are gone. He does not lose anything, for with the loss of himself, he loses the knowledge of loss. Don't you see? And what have you to say? That you are at least consistent was all I could say, and I went on washing the dishes. End of chapter 6